Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, we are so thankful that you have given it to us, that you have in it revealed yourself to us. You have made known to us your son. You have made known to us your salvation and the great promises that attend to it and the great power and enablement by the Spirit to live according to it. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us alone, but that you have given us the promised Holy Spirit. Indeed, even now, God, as we turn to give our attention in this time to a hearing and understanding of your word, we know that it is spiritual truth that must be spiritually discerned. God, I pray that you would grant and help for me to speak your word very, very clearly and simply. Lord, give your people ears to hear, not only in the hearing and understanding, but God, we pray that you would be pleased to just warm our hearts with a sense of the richness of the gospel that you have revealed to us, of the salvation that we've come to know, of the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus, of the grace that you have poured out upon us. God, grant us that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here as we take up this section, we have, we're now into that second missionary journey of Paul, no longer traveling with Barnabas. Barnabas has gone off with John Mark, and he began to uh, go in certain regions, and, and Paul took Silas, and we had talked before about their differences and, and that separation, and encouraged to see the way God was using both of them in their ministry. Uh, Paul and Silas move on, Timothy eventually joins them, and they carry on the work of the Lord. Now, what's interesting, and we looked at last week, and if you're interested, do look at last week's video, and we wrestle with that, uh, the Holy Spirit forbid them to go there, and the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. And, and those are challenging passages, but rich understanding of how God was divinely guiding them where he would have them be. The details in which the sovereign hand of God is set over his people is so profoundly securing. But as we come into this passage, we begin to move now to, to the next stage. They tried to go here, and they could not. They try, thought of going there, and they were not allowed. And so the, the struggle is, where then shall we go? All these places that we attempt, we're not able to go there or were forbidden to go there. And we know here it tells us in verse 9 that Paul has a vision in the night. And it says this, it was a man of Macedonia standing there urging him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. We talked briefly last week how uh, oftentimes, scholars get themselves all knotted up trying to figure out things that the text doesn't say. You know, oh, Paul must have recognized he was from Macedonia because of the language that he was speaking or the accent that he had or the style of dress he was wearing. Or, as we noted, possibly because he said, come over to Macedonia and help us. It could be as simple as that. Uh, but again, to understand the import of this passage, is it crucial that we know how Paul came to note that this man was from Macedonia? See, sometimes we, we, we make big 
the things that are not big. If it was big, if it was for us to take note of this as a crucial thing in the passage, it would be given to us by the Holy Spirit in this passage. We wouldn't have to read into it between the lines, underneath the words, round and round. We look at what it says. We note what it says. We glory in what it says. And the first thing I want us to note in what it says, here in this passage, it says, Come over to Macedonia and help us. That seems somewhat vague. Help us. Us. If someone were to give me a call on the phone, likely not through a vision in the night, a call and say, I need you to come over and help me. I would probably not conclude, wonderful, this brother wants me to come share the gospel with him. Because sadly, people rarely call me to come and do that. Or call you to come and do it. But listen, this is the, the immediate conclusion. Look at verse 10. Paul had seen the vision. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding what? That God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Which I want you to note this, and it's a simple fact. The surpassing priority of spiritual things. He says, come help us. That could seemingly mean anything. Maybe they're having a famine and they're in need of water. Maybe there is an outbreak of plague and they're in need of medicinal support or something. Maybe you can go on with the multitude of maybes. But we don't know anything except he said, help us. And Paul's conclusion, which really goes to the heart of the highest priority, is the help they need is gospel help. The help they need is spiritual truth. Now, does the world in general recognize they need that? It is highly likely that no specific Macedonian themselves were keenly aware of their spiritual lack and need. But God had revealed this to Paul. Help was needed, and so we must go. We must come to the aid of them. The, the, the term there that's, that's translated help us is, is most simply understood. It is run to the aid of one who cries for help. So again, that gives no specific direction. But I want us to know this. He concluded this. God has called us to preach the gospel to them. Now I want to make something really clear here. In our Bibles, we have a phrase, preach the gospel to. That is one single word in the Greek. You know, it comes from that word that you've probably heard before, euangelizo, which when I Americanize it, evangelize. Does that make better sense? Okay, thank you. Uh, uh, but, the, when you but listen, it is announce 
the good news. Proclaim the good tidings. And I wish that the translators had simply said that. Tell them the good news. Because when it says preach the gospel to them, what do we have a tendency to think? I'm not a preacher. I'm not called to be a This is talking about the duty of pastors and missionaries professional service guys. That, that, but that's not it. I, I wish it, it had gone with the simple clarity of the word, and that is to go and announce it, to go and say it, to go and declare it. And again, the Bible does at times have words for preaching that speak of an announcing, a heralding, that speak of a dialogue and a declaring of what is delivered. This is just one single word, and this is what we're all able to do. And one of the things that stirred me up just a little bit, strangely enough, I read it yesterday, and I've talked about this before. Uh, the good news is not my story. The good news is to tell of Jesus Christ, who He is, what He did, how He lived righteously, how He died humbly and obediently, how He bore the sins so that all who cry out to Him in faith can have full forgiveness of their sin because He bore the wrath of God on their behalf. It is who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Listen, if you read through the book of Acts, and obviously I encourage you to read the Scriptures... But we do note there are occasions where Paul shares what we often refer to as his testimony. That's the, the way we speak of things today. What's interesting is every time we have a Paul testimony, he's speaking before rulers, governors, and authorities where he's been called to give a defense of why he's doing what he's doing and explain those things. But when he goes into the various towns and various places and various villages, you know what he's declaring to them? As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Christ and him crucified. Not just me and me changed. Because I will say this, and it's, it's, it's a heartbreaking thing. We do live in a world of false professions of faith. So many will know people who have said, when I was young, I went to camp and I committed myself to the Lord, and then I came back and went to high school and lived as wickedly as the world, and, and people have seen all of that. And so when you, when you tell people uh, uh, your story, they also know a multitude of stories where it seems their commitment to Jesus did not change them, did not make them different, did not make them new. Actually, sadly, they may know more stories of people who were never ultimately changed than of our story. Now listen, 
are we thinking that if our story is compelling enough, then we will convince them? That's not the gospel. The gospel is the glory of God in the face and person of Christ and what he's done. And, and it is ultimately Christ they must believe in. Not simply want to share or have the same experience that we've had. They must rest and believe and trust in Christ. So look, I'm not saying you cannot share your experience, but sometimes we get caught up and confused that our experience, what if your testimony isn't by human measures extraordinary? I was born in a Christian home, was going to church while in the womb, and then following that. Uh, heard the truths of God's word all along, was raised with, with careful standards of right and wrong, uh, knew right and wrong. God had mercy on me while I was yet a reasonably young boy. I recognized I still struggle, I still did wrong, and the scripture says everyone is a sinner, everyone is in need of the forgiveness and righteousness that is only available in Christ, and, and God revealed that to me, my need, and he moved me by his spirit to cry out, while yet young, while, while yet a boy, while having never been drunk, while uh, you know having never had a girlfriend, while never having done any of those things that men oft boast of, God had mercy on me and brought me to himself, made me new, and kept me throughout my life from much of the wickedness of the world. Thank you, Lord. That's not impressive. Tell me about the guy who lived in great worldly wickedness, was, was trapped into it, was caught into it, a different woman, a different bar, a different this every day, every night, and, and all of these things, and then finally was ready to throw themselves off a bridge in endless hopelessness, and yet in the last moment, they remembered the gospel that had been shared with them. Oh, yeah. I tell you, when uh, I was interviewing students years ago for, um, who would come into the Bible college there in, in uh, India, so many of the Bible college students I would interview told me a story quite similar to that. How wicked they were, how they were at the point of suicide, how that suicide was going to be by throwing themselves in front of a train, and then, and, wow, there are a lot of train-rooted suicidal tendencies in India. I didn't, I didn't get it until a couple years later I was listening to the testimony of a very famous Christian evangelist, and it was his testimony. So people borrowed. My story ain't so good, but his was moving when I heard it, so I'm, I'm, I'm buying that one, and I'm going to share because that's more important. No! What has to move people is the reality of the Son of God setting aside all of His extraordinary glory and coming in the form of sinful man, knowing weariness, knowing hunger, knowing weakness, the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power. That he who created and is even giving life to these people, they're using that life and they're using that breath to mock him. 
to speak against him, to scorn him. They're using the, the spittle that he enables to cast that upon him. The strength that he alone provides that they might beat him and whip him and mistreat him and nail him to the tree. What moves is the reality of the person of Christ and that he who knew no sin would be nailed to the cross for our sin. He who was at eternal unity and oneness in the Godhead would utter those mysterious and unfathomable words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then he would breathe his last and yield up his spirit. And there would be cataclysm on the earth. Earthquakes, stones tearing into, the veil ripping from top to bottom as Christ has in his flesh made a new and living way, granting us access to God. Not by the means of the old covenant in the temple, but in himself. A glorious access far greater than was ever known by Aaron or any of his offspring. We are adopted in the beloved. We can draw near to the throne of grace and find help in a time of need. Oh, the gospel. Uh, let us not miss that. Uh, now listen. Does that mean when, when the church sees that people need help, we don't help? I'm, I'm sure that you're all aware of, of something that, that we often malign, and rightly so, what's called the social gospel which is the tendency for churches uh, to start getting involved in, in social activities that are not bad in and of themselves. Food pantries, providing food to the needy is, is good. Um, uh, medical camps or opportunities is good and helpful. And, and, and these things have value. But there is a surpassing priority for spiritual things. And so in the midst of those, I'm aware of, and many, many groups that uh, exist, for example, the, um, what they call the rescue mission, out where I'm from, it, it, they provide meals, and they even provide a bed for those who are in need, homeless, struggling, many of those who are recovering from, from uh, severe entanglements to the substances of this world. But you can't just show up for a meal. If you want to have the meal, you got to be willing to sit through the preaching of the word. And so there are some people who aren't willing to do that. Now, if I'm going to have to sit through that in order to have a meal, forget it. But their understanding is this. If all we do is give them a meal and a bed, what long term, I mean, really long term what eternal good are we doing them and so if we don't use every opportunity to set forth eternal realities then what is the real point because we've got to understand this now listen and i want and i don't want us to miss this when jesus is judging those who will be among the most do-gooders even in practical ways are going to be the believers when Jesus is judging the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, he says to them these words in verse 35, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty 
and you gave me drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. In prison, you came to me. I mean, all of these helpful, good things that people do for others. And, and, and the, the righteous there say, when did we do this to you? And Jesus said, inasmuch as you did these to my brothers, you did them to me. And then to the goats, he says, I was hungry and you did not. I was thirsty and you did not. I need all. Now listen, the goats, those who are unbelievers, are not ultimately going to find salvation because they had food drives. Okay? And because of these other things. But these, these will characterize the people of God to some extent. It says this in 1 John 3. If anyone has, verse 17, the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, love not in word and talk only, but in deed and in truth. James 2 says, uh, if you see someone, a brother or sister poorly clothed and lacking in food, James 2.16 says, and you say to him, go in peace, be warm and filled. I, what have you done for that person? Nothing. I mean, again, that's like walking outside to your car and saying, be washed and be filled with gas. When you, It's not going to be. It's still going to be dirty. It's still going to be empty. You haven't done anything. If you have the means of doing it, the scripture says, to do it. So again, we're not, we're not as, as sometimes some have said, we don't become so spiritually minded that we're of no earthly good, if you've heard that phrase before. Indeed, the spiritually minded will be the most significant earthly good, but it's never going to be locked to those things that are earthly. And it's always going to be trying to push and engage to those things that are higher. Indeed, I would say the highest help the greatest good, the best benevolence that we can ever provide to anyone is what? The gospel of Jesus Christ, more than anything else. Now, in a lesser way, but showing a practical limitation, in Acts chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, we have Peter coming into the temple where there was a, a crippled man. And what did Peter say to that crippled man? You probably know it. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now listen. So he didn't have what that man was specifically asking for, but he gave him something better than what he was asking for, correct? Now transplant me in that place instead of Peter. I don't have get up and walk to give to that man. You likely don't either. But you know what we do have? Something even more valuable than to be able to walk in the flesh 
for someone to be brought to life and be able to walk by faith and not by sight, to walk in the spirit and not according to the flesh, that we can give them the gospel that God is pleased to use to deliver his people. So we can give them in a sense, the highest help. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. For he says, In a favorable time I have listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. That's that same word, helped. The greatest help that we can ever give to someone is the gospel of salvation. Some are saying, in the midst of the circumstances that we're living in today, the most loving thing that you can do is lock your doors and stay at home. The most loving thing you can do when you're walking and somebody is approaching, turn and run. Stay away. Don't engage. Don't. Is that the most loving thing you can do? They may live another 30 years. But what does even a day matter apart from the grace of God in Christ? Well, we are, we are putting a premium on that which is surely coming to an end. Instead of putting a priority on the life that is life without end and is only in Christ. What is, what is happening? The most loving thing is not secret, secluded silence. The most loving thing is to speak the gospel. And listen, in my experience, the voice can carry beyond six feet. You know, we've been here on certain circumstances where things are taking place outside and soon the lights are gone. And soon the microphones are off. But somehow, by the grace of God, even those outside the front door can still hear what I'm saying. Because the voice can carry farther than it. And sometimes I even think back, and when God moved men like uh, uh, George Whitfield to preach the gospel, he would enable that man to stand out in public fields and proclaim the gospel to thousands of people with no assistance. Well, how dare I say no assistance? No electronic assistance. Surely spiritual assistance attended to and enabled that man to lift his voice and preach the gospel. And we know of the Spirit's assistance because how oft God was even yet pleased through his preaching of the gospel to provide the increase, to bring the fruit, to bring the growth. Noting this, one more of these before I move on beyond the surpassing priority of spiritual things. In Luke chapter 5, and we're all acquainted with this, it's, it's one of those children's stories that we get, the Bible stories. The friends bring their crippled friend, they cannot get up to Jesus, and so they go up to the roof, they remove the slats from the roof, and they lower the fella down. So that he can drop right there in front of Jesus. And what was that man's need in his own mind? To be healed. That he might stand and walk. 
Why did his friends bring him there that day? That he might stand and walk. What did Jesus do initially when they lowered him? I tell you something far, far greater. And if he had stopped there, that man had eternal cause for rejoicing. It says this in Luke chapter 5, verse 20, as, as this man was lowered, Jesus said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. I like that extra, extra bit that's not quite English. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven you. It's like, well, this is very personal. Yes, it is. The forgiveness of sin is very specific and very personal. And it is not something that just anyone can pronounce. Remember, those who were gathered there were like, what is he doing? Only God can forgive sin. That's right. And here is the Son of God, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus had done for him in that moment the highest priority. He had dealt with his eternal need, and yet, listen, at that moment, though he had received the greatest gift from Christ, could he stand? He could not yet stand. Could he walk? He could not yet walk. But did he really need anything else? Listen, there's a lot of believers who are in wheelchairs, and they rejoice in the Lord. You know, sometimes it's, it's oft astounding that God is pleased to grant individuals that He has given a practical temporal limitation in this life uh, to, to have a, a, a greater hope and anticipation for glory, you know, and, and with such a tragic frequency, those of us who have gotten from God all the practical, ordinary benefits and faculties have a greater tendency to grumble, you know? Uh, we we uh, sprain our back, and, and, and for a few days, we're less than mobile, or, or our knee, or whatever it may be. Uh, this individual has been in a chair for 20 years, and yet, when you talk with them, and you engage with them, the joy of Christ, the hope of glory. And note this, their hope isn't the longing and anticipation that I might do some river dance in glory. You know, their, their sense is, their hope is not that. It is what? To see him as he is, to be with him and to be made like him. Yeah, whether that did or did not include functional limbs is far secondary to the glory that is to be revealed. You know? Oh, so much. And Jesus, of course, says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sin, rise up and walk. The rise up and walk was just a secondary sign to show the superior thing. And what is the, that which had surpassing value surpassing priority the forgiveness of sin and now what do we do we proclaim the forgiveness of sin that is in christ alone now go on with me and we're going to see the second thing this day and the second thing we, that we note this is uh, as we move down so he he travels on a cross makes his way into macedonia 
And again, he lands in the port, and then while there, he travels on to the city of Philippi. Some people may say, well, why didn't he at Samothrace stop there and share the gospel? Why did he not at the port? Why did he carry on to Philippi? And again, my answer is this, I don't know, and neither does anybody else. Because the scripture does not tell. God told him to come to Macedonia. He went there. Can I speculate? Yes. Should I? Do you want me to anyway? Some of you are saying, well, well, some like to think it's because it was such a leading city, Philippi was. And so a lot of people come and go from there commerce-wise. And so it could be a strategic place. But when I look at the gospel ministry of the apostles, and I look at the, the moving around in ministry of Christ, I don't think the priority ever seemed to be on what seemed humanly strategic. And so I'll leave the secret things to God, and I want to deal with the things that we do know as he's there. They're in this place, and tragically of sorts, and you're going to get my speculation anyways, sorry. Uh, the greater likelihood of a significant number of Jews might be within the leading city. And so if you go there, you have a greater likelihood of finding a synagogue where you can meet with them on the Sabbath and begin to open up the word to them and reveal to them the promised Messiah that they had been waiting for is not how they thought or who they thought, but he has come and his kingdom has come. Yet, as they reached Philippi, even there, no synagogue. And so what they did on the Sabbath is they went out to the river. Because in order to form a synagogue, you had to have, by rabbinical laws, at least 10 male Jews. Sorry if you feel excluded, dear ladies. This was the, the, the Jewish requirement. Until you had 10 males committed, you could not form a synagogue and establish one. And even if you did, it would often be out by the river because much of what took place within Judaism required uh, forms of washings and ablution, so you needed access to water. But they went out there, and there was no such thing. There was no synagogue. There was no nothing. So do you think he should have just put his hands in his pockets, figuratively, since he did not wear slacks, the, the, and, and walk away with his head, oh, well, there's no Jews here, forget it. Oh, there's no men here, forget it. No, he went and he sat down with a group of women who had gathered together to pray. You know, uh, someone would say, well, why does it seem like he was doing that? Uh, look, it was often and clearly described in Scripture, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, because that prevailing pattern established men with, with a foundation of scriptural knowledge for very quick discipleship and readiness. I mean, how quickly ready uh, was Paul once he came to understand who the Messiah was, all the pieces of the Old Testament began to, to become clear to him that shortly he was in the synagogue in Damascus proving to them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. 
And so when you begin with men who have a background, it, you can more quickly develop into a good, stable church with, with, with grounding in the truth of God. And so that's why it was off to the Jew first and then to the Greek. He goes out there, and there are, there are just these, these uh, Jewish women who are gathered there. And it says this, verse 13 at the end. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And, I, and I, so I just want to put the... So the, the first thing that I said was the surpassing priority of spiritual things. The second thing I draw your attention to is the simple practice of speaking plainly. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be erudite. It doesn't have to be impressive. You know, some people read more and some people read less. Uh, 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 Spurgeon had an exceeding way with words. When you read him, he could, he could make fancy pictures and he had a, a, an expansive vocabulary, um, as well as did many of the Puritans, to which you may pass a friend of yours, a Puritan book today, and they'll say, I read chapter one three times and I'm still not getting it. I don't know what this guy is saying. Uh, you ever feel that? Uh, but listen, uh, the basics of the gospel don't need fancy words. But I want to note this. Even though it doesn't need fancy words, it needs faithful words. All right? Uh, again, I heard this week somebody was saying, you know, if the church wants to be more effective in the world today, we need to learn to speak pagan. Whatever. You know, don't use words they don't understand. Don't tell them about, don't say sin, because the moment you say sin, it makes people uncomfortable, and it makes you seem judgy. All right, well, if the Bible says sin, you know what I'm going to say? Sin. And if it says, don't say righteousness, that's a church word. So you're telling me the world at large doesn't generally have the right vocabulary? Maybe not, because the vocabulary they use is rooted in the world and often in wicked practices. We will explain biblical words to them. We will explain to them sin. We will explain to them righteousness. But we will declare it simply and plainly. The story is told... Um, when George Whitfield did come over to America, one of the things he did is he encouraged his then close friend, John Wesley, to take over some of the speaking that he was doing. His preaching was done in different ways, not just going in churches and places. He would go out early morning before the coal miners went into the coal mines, and he would preach to those who often had very little education. And so... Uh, when John Wesley then went to do this, there was a little bit of a difficulty and a little bit of a learning curve because he spoke fancy. He spoke posh, and he needed to bring it down plain. So the story goes that he used to write out his messages. He would hand them to the lady who was like the maid cleaning their house and say, is there anything you don't understand? And if there was something she couldn't understand, then he would seek to simplify it because he knew when he went out there to speak it 
or, or figure out, I'm going to have to explain this. I'm going to have to give a definition for this so that it becomes clear. But it is in the same plain, simple speaking. We sat down and spoke with the women. Remember Romans 1, we say this often, Romans 1, 16 and following says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, we're not the inventors of the gospel. We are those who have received it. And as it was delivered, we declare it. And so we're not ashamed of the gospel that we've got to make it softer, that we've got to make it harder. The gospel has its own stumbling block. It has its own rock of offense to people. But it's possible I can be offensive to people. And or the, by that I mean the person speaking, you know. Uh, for example, the scriptures may say, again, as it does, um, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one that does good. There's no one that seeks after God. We've all together become worthless, right? I mean, Romans 3, 9, and 10, it's very clear. But probably the opening line is not to pin someone in an elevator and said, you have any idea how worthless you are? I think you are utterly useless. Worthless, good for nothing. It's not the best starting point because you're not, you're not giving a context. Uh, uh, they, they could have some practical worth to their family, some practical worth to their employer or company. And so you're, you're, just, you're just being offensive. And instead of the, the, the wonderful finger thing, you ought to simply be pointing out, I've come to know without Christ, we are all in a state of worthlessness, hopelessness, uselessness. Without faith, we cannot please God. And we have no hope of passing the judgment if we've not pleased God. But praise God, though we have not pleased Him, He sent His Son, who in all points, in every day, in every moment, pleased the Father. His righteousness, His perfect pleasing of the Father is counted to us. And our displeasing, our sin, our failure, the judgment and wrath that should come on us was poured out on the Son. I mean, when, when you start to grasp this, it becomes clear. Because listen, I say this, we're not ashamed of the gospel of, uh, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So listen, you have not shared the gospel if the righteousness of God is not revealed. See, we think sometimes we've shared the gospel if we've simply said, hey, do you want to go to heaven or hell? Think of this, bliss, streets of gold, private mansion, or pain, suffering, agony, burning. Which one you want? Pray this with me. That, that, that does not get it. There is The righteousness of God has not been revealed. All you've revealed is the ordinary, selfish desires of men. That eternal selfish desire, bliss, comfort, ease, sounds good to me. Uh, but then it also goes on to say this. Verse 18, for the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. 
So listen, for the gospel to have been declared, you know what's going to be heard? The righteousness of God, the wrath of God, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's Christian speak. Uh, that's the gospel. If it's become Christian speak, it's because we cling to that in hope. It's because that is the grounds of all that we now know and live in. It's the power of God to salvation for us. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 4 too. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth. We say it clearly. Now listen. We're going to move on to the second point, and this, uh, or the, uh, the third point, and this is one that often gets people messed up. I want us to see this, and, and for a lot of this, I'm just going to read verses and let those sink into you. And what I want you to see is this. The, the third point is this, the supernatural power that produces a saving response, Okay? And we see this take place right here in Lydia. What does it say with regard to Lydia? He's speaking the words uh, to them. Verse 14, one who heard that was named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple. And look, it doesn't matter if she sold purple or pink, red or blue. That's not germane to the argument here. What's, what's important is this. It says at the end of this verse, uh, the Lord opened her heart. Do you see that? That is the distinctive reality. You know, it's a really strange thing. There is um, a man who is for the uh, Texas General Baptist Convention, the director of evangelism. And he has committed himself to what he calls decalvinizing and so he keeps putting all these videos up of different passages in the scripture and he says decalvinizing this and decalvinizing that and on and on and on and on and on and look whatever you want to call it calvinizing arminianism the point is we need to be faithful to the scriptures for this particular individual i'm hoping at some point that he realizes why do i have to keep doing uh, you know language gymnastics and why do i have to keep twisting this one and you know and twisting that one and changing this at some point i'm thinking he's going to say there's just too many passages i got to change the meaning of i got to stop this nonsense and just let it say what it says well, listen to what it, what it says here is in very, very simple language. The Lord opened her heart. Now, note this. If the Lord had not opened her heart, what would have been and remained the condition of her heart? I'm going to give this even more abbreviated than I had intended, but go back with me if you would in your Bibles. Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. Such an important verse. Here, in speaking to the children of Israel, those who had come out of slavery in Egypt, come through the Red Sea on dry land, those who God had delivered from enemy after enemy, those who had had healing, 
by looking at a bronze serpent lifted up. I mean, have you ever thought of that? I mean, there's no injection, there's no treatment, there's no cut and suck out the venom. uh, Here's how you're going to be healed. Have a look. How's that going to work? How's it going to work is the power of God. That it's going to work is the promise of God. So all you got to know, it's a promise of God rooted in the power of God. Even if you think there's a better way, that's how it's happening. They had, they had seen water come out of the rock, manna from heaven every morning like dew. I mean, they had heard the voice of God saying, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So I would ask you, if you were to interview all of those people, do you believe there's a God? How many of them can say no? Uh, yes, we see his mercies and provision every morning. We drink because he provides water. We have heard his voice. We see his glory in the pillar of fire and smoke and and manifest at the entrance of the temple. There is no question in our mind there is a God. But here's the next question. So why don't you savingly believe in him in such a way that you truly follow him? Why did they die in the wilderness, it tells us in Hebrews? Because of disbelief, which is tantamount to disobedience. Why? Why? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4. He tells them the problem. To this day, even though they had walked and their sandals had not worn out for 40 years, that would put some companies out of business. To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So, what's the difference? What's needed? Listen, there can be no more earthly evidence. I say this to a lot of my, my, my dear brothers in the faith. Look, you can, you can have scientific arguments until you can't breathe anymore about creationism versus evolution. You just not... Listen... Creationism is not the power of God unto salvation. God, through the gospel, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. What has to happen is the very same thing that happened to Lydia. The Lord must open her heart. Listen to what it says as I read a few of the passages of God's word. And just let these sink in. Because it's not about decalvinizing or recalvinizing. It really ultimately is about hearing and understanding the power and the glory of God in saving his people. It says this in Psalm 110, verse 3 Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of their, your power. 
A lot of people will argue, uh, well, what makes a person willing? It's not fair if God turns our heart, if God opens our heart. Listen to what, uh, how is it that uh, I or you were ever born again? James 1.18 says this, of his own will, he brought us forth. We like to say, of my own will, I followed. I have decided, and we celebrate that, but listen, you decided and you followed, but have you ever asked why you followed, why you decided, what brought your response and not your cousins, your response and not your neighbors, what made the difference? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Romans chapter 9 says it this way in verse 16. So it depends not on human will. So what does it not depend on? Trick question. It does not depend on human will. It does not depend on human will or exertion, on him who wills or him who runs, but on what? On God who has mercy. So we, we, we've got to understand this. It says in uh, verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. If we say the gospel and they don't, he, they don't get it, it's because, as it goes on to say, the God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. But then it gives this example. Let me read it for you. It says this. We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of God darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God and the glory of Christ. So we're in darkness, blinded by the God of this age, and he is powerless to stop God from accomplishing what he wants. No, it's, it's not that one day I was walking and I saw the light. No, 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 it's not I saw the light, I saw the light. It, now, I saw it, but how did I come to see it? And it says, basically by linking it to the very creative power and initiative of God. As God said, let there be light, while I was yet in utter darkness, he said, let there be light, and what? Shown the light of the gospel on my heart, opened my heart, opened yours, gave us understanding, so that it goes on to say this, look, um, we have this treasure in clay jars to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, all right, so, so you know who gets the credit for the salvation? Not the preachers. Remember, it says this in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 7, and 8. Neither he who her plants and he who waters is anything 
but only God gives the growth. So that when anyone is saved, it is all God who has done that. You cannot praise the individuals who delivered the message, which also means you need not fear that you don't have great eloquence to deliver it. It's the power of God that will save. But also, from the other side, you can't give the glory to the deliverers of the gospel, and you can't give the glory to the person who received it either. We are. I'm going to have to take this up again next week because for some reason on Sunday mornings, the clock clearly runs twice as fast as on other days. But um, the scripture says this, and I take you just, we'll close with this today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says this, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise by worldly standards. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose. So we can't root God's choosing in any particular qualities in us that might make us better than others because we all differ from one another. And oft in, in the general strata of the world, we're just not super impressive. But God chose what is weak, foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Verse 29, so that no human being may boast in his presence. The preacher cannot boast. The person who's saved cannot boast. No one can boast. Why? Because listen to what it says in verse 30. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Literally in the Greek it says, and out from Him, you are in Christ Jesus. So who caused it, I might ask? You say, He did. Who did, and how did he do this? Of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Because of Christ's death on the cross, he secured that the wisdom of God would be granted us in the giving of the Spirit, helping us to understand and thus believe the gospel that is given to us. We're going to take this up again next week. Let me just remind you of the things that we've seen so far and prep us for the things that we will see a little further next week. We saw the surpassing priority of spiritual things. Now, that's not to the exclusion of doing good, loving, helping, caring whenever God gives us opportunity. But a highest priority must be the spiritual. Secondly, the simplicity of plain speaking. Thirdly, the supernatural power that produces a response. And, the, and, and under that, what we've seen so far is what God does. What does God do? He opens the heart. He initiates. He brings from death to life. He makes alive. He makes new. He brings light where there was darkness. Next week, we will look a little bit more closely at the second part in this passage, and that is, what we do. So this, speaks, this passage speaks of what God does, and it speaks then of what we do. Okay, and we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much 
for the richness of your word. And even though at times the, the doctrines are seemingly high, we thank you, thank you that you say them so plainly that it takes tremendous effort on the part of men uh, uh, to deny it, to deceive themselves, to misunderstand. And we thank you, O oh God, that you did not leave salvation to our wills, especially as we know that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were enslaved. We were unable and unwilling. But thank you, O oh God, for making us willing in the day of your power. Thank you, God, for while we were in darkness, um, shining forth by your power, your light. Thank you, God, for the life in Christ that you've given us through the hearing of the gospel. Embolden us that we might declare that gospel to others, that you might, through the gospel, continue to save your sheep. Use us, O oh God, in this way, in this community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.